Hi everybody, welcome to the Patreon-exclusive episode of No Country, episode number 15 of our Patreon-exclusives. Chris and I were having a bit of a bummer session in the free-to-air episode. Chris, are you still bummed out? How are you feeling, man? You okay? Uh, look, you with me, buddy? I, I'm feeling better, David. I I, I have to say, I, I, I always uh, enjoy you know our exchanges. You always lift me up. And I did notice that we were both uh, a little bit... Uh, down in the mouth this weekend, and maybe that's appropriate. Maybe that was really the the theme that we were we were getting to. Uh, I, I do have some takeouts from that, which I think feed very nicely into the energy we were building from uh, last our last show uh, behind the paywall. So I, I think it's all good, but um, you know it it's okay to have some down moments, and it is summer's end. We were talking about, uh, you know, the the 20th anniversary of a major American crisis. Uh, So I I think it's all cool. Excellent. Yeah, I think it's cool, too. It feels good to get it out of your system. I think that there is just every once in a while you do just kind of get bummed. And it's hard not to. It really is hard not to, because part of the reason why we have this podcast is supposed to be, you know, a diagnosis and a proposed solution to the exact feelings that Chris and I were expressing on the free-to-air episode, which is a disconnection of not having a country. And not having a country isn't all fun and games. It's not all... Exactly right. Well said. You know, sometimes you get fucking bummed because you want a country. You just want to hang out and, and chill with your friends and drink beers and not have to worry if... They're worried that you're breathing on them and, you know, do you have COVID or don't you have COVID? Are you one of the dirty, unwashed, unvaxxed? Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. tiresome. It's, it's, it's tiresome, man. All of that is exactly well said. And, and the other part of the problem is it's, it's no more complicated than that. And I, I think that there's a sense that we deserve some more complicated and interesting problems. Uh, and and sometimes they're just not. So, yep, well, well said. And this is this podcast is all about addressing those problems and and trying to use our creative energies together to move past those problems. Absolutely. On that note, what on earth do you want to talk about? in this second part. Okay, well, I'm going to remind our listeners that you have once again been given five words to choose two to surreptitiously, stealthily integrate somehow into our discussion, and also the ongoing experiment with David's mind of seeing... What's left of it. Well, look, I think you've you've responded beautifully to these creative <laughs> challenges. So for people who have not heard about this before, uh, what I do is is give David uh, some kind of creative imaginative task that he has not heard of before. I promise he is hearing this for the first time, as are you. And the idea is that we carry on our discussion and investigations. But meanwhile, uh, he has to, in real time, parallel process some solution response to the challenge, which uh, gets delivered at the end before our practical tip and our dream sharing. So 
Mr. Osborne, are you ready for your challenge? Yeah. Oh, I get it at the beginning this time? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Let's oh, go. Yeah. I Let's think, do it. I think we should. Uh, okay. I want you to imagine that you and Rios have a little break from parenting. You take a little date time, little foray out into beautiful Oklahoma, some natural setting, perhaps a nearby state park, and you're wanting to get away from people and to be alone together. (laughs) You do that, and you find another couple... And I'm going to leave it entirely to you to think about the nature of this couple. You find another couple who are also wanting to get away from other people. But what they're up to is not something that you had thought of before and is a genuine sense and source of surprise. Okay? That's your challenge. Okay. Oh, that is challenging. Yeah. I like it. I like it. And (laughs) let's see. So I have, all right. Woods. All right. I will be processing it. It has begun processing, sir. Good. Good, good, good. Okay. Well, um, we'll, uh, we'll rock on, uh, um, with the episode. eh? Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think a link to, uh, part one and we we did get to something interesting and i think you really led the charge there of trying to position 9 11 in terms of a mythopoetic uh crisis a magical crisis an attack on america on a spiritual sort of plane and one of my takeouts of that is that we we kind of um but that's really interesting, and 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 that's the that's where we want it to be, and and how we want to see things, and that we genuinely view the world that way. And it's sometimes hard to to get there because of media exhaustion, because of of constant bombardment of socio political uh, stuff that's not really on that level. But I love that sort of mythopoetic magical Jungian thinking that you bring to things. And I want to go back to last episode where, and I encourage people to re-listen to that because I did, and I was even more amazed. Uh, I believe that you introduced the idea, and I'm this is purely my gloss, my paraphrase, okay? It, it came out of our mm-hmm. discussion of, of Charles Manson and the significance of the Manson murders and how that changed our notion of the counterculture, how it was kind of a dark side, uh, a dark magical side to uh, the you know, era of love. Um, but I believe you actually put forward an immensely radical idea of popular culture in the modern era seen as 
ritual magical child sacrifice. Is that in any way fair? A hundred percent. Okay. I will say that with conviction. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, I think that is a really huge idea that now needs to be teased out, taken apart, and looked at from as many different angles as we can, because something in that, uh, you've often talked about tuning forks. We mentioned uh, the Twin Towers as a tuning fork idea. We talk about crystal radio, pirate radio, ghost radio. Tuning is is kind of a, a thing of ours. And that really, really resonated with me when you said that. I thought I heard a vibration that was true. So how do we pull that apart now and, and look at it and, and go forward with that idea? Because I think it's a major idea. The way that we move forward with the idea of pop culture as ritualistic child sacrifice in particular. Uh-huh. Well, I think that I think that we can start with an idea of what the point of that kind of sacrifice would be in the first place. So why would it be necessary for a culture at large to sacrifice uh, one of its young in order to do what exactly? Are we, are we trying to stay young through them? Is there an energy field around the young that we tune into and that we, we feed off of? Is there something in the in the sacrifice process, the taking of life, that opens up some kind of rupture within space time that uh, allows for a kind of cosmic bloodletting? Um, there are a lot of reasons why this might take place. One reason, the one thing that I don't think it actually does, though, and this is interesting because, from a Girardian sense, you know th- these kind of sacrifices have to do with a scapegoat. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that child sacrifice has anything to do. I mean, it's hard to scapegoat a child. You know, Uh, we're not we're not putting all of our uh, free floating anxieties into a child and then, you know, sort of sending them off into the netherworld with our baggage. Right. It's something it's something different, maybe a bit more vampiric. Maybe we could start there. That seems to me to have, I, I, I certainly think that word is, is on the money uh, in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it, it, it's more that than uh, a scapegoat kind of, of, of sacrifice. I, I think it, it's, uh, it, it's some kind of, um, I mean, vampirism always sort of suggests a renewable resource, doesn't it? I think that we've, We've looked at that before in terms of uh, we, we don't want to destroy something so that, uh, well, that we can't, you know, keep sucking its blood and life, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, I'm, where, did, where, where, where did you think it was going to go? I mean, like, I'm, I'm totally open to where you want to go with it, too. Well... I was honestly just uh, so astonished by the clarity of that uh, hitting yeah. that I, I kind of, I mean, my first thought was I, I, I was, uh, I was very interested that that assertion came out of a discussion 
of Charles Manson and that moment uh, in popular culture, um, which is kind of a late moment. I mean, we could have gone earlier. We could have gone back to the 50s. We could have gone, you know, back to the roaring, you know, there there are many ways. I mean, we, we could have really gone back to the mid-19th century if we, if we uh, I, th- I think that's really when modernity begins. Uh, but somehow there was there was something in the Manson moment and I feel it very acutely because I was just, as I said, in California. I, mean, I kind of brought the whole thing. I was in California on the coast in these beautiful areas. Uh, and he also was associated with, of course, Death Valley and, and the Mojave. So I'm kind of surrounded by the, the Manson energy. Uh, but there was something in that beautiful summertime vibe of uh, you know, pop music and all this good energy that suddenly had this real dark, twisted side to it that that really, I, th- I think, was absolutely essential. Um, so maybe, I mean, I don't know if, if we uh, mentioned this last time, but I've been thinking about it. Uh, you know, he talked about when he, because most of his life really was was institutionalized, you know, uh, in, in terrible prison environments, uh, you know, constantly the victim of rape and violence himself. And so he got out of that, you know, kind of uh, on a really temporary sort of basis. And one of the things uh, that he remarked on was that he encountered this absolute paradise of young girls with no panties angry at their fathers. You know, that was his perception. That was his, uh, and he really saw them as uh, kind of orphans, you know? I mean, they were certainly easy prey for him, no, no, no doubt about that. But I think a part of him actually thought that he was rescuing them, and they certainly thought he was rescuing them from affluent, uh, overbearing, uh, white establishment parents who they felt didn't love them enough. So they were sacrifices already. I think that might be a place to start. Right. So it's kind of almost catching this sort of energy and putting it in like on a on a pegboard, like a butterfly. Right. Mm -hmm. Kind of kind of stopping a certain energy at a certain point before it can mature in and, you know, realize all of the kind of disappointments and fatigue, the sort of spirit that uh, inhabits us from time to time when we do get depressed and disappointed with life in general. There's definitely kind of that that moment. You know, um, in in magic, there is a certain kind of focus that's put on the moment of orgasm, especially with, uh, you know, sending sigils off into the world. Many of uh, Crowley's text, Crowley was kind of obsessed with uh, semen and sperm in general, right? Right. Um, but there is this kind of idea of the, of the, the primordial stuff being a, a substance that can be worked with in a, in a profoundly magical way. And it only makes sense that, you know, children still have that kind of potentiality. So perhaps it has to do with, uh, you know, 
capturing that potentiality in a way. Okay. Well, well, that's certainly, I, I think, unquestionably right. I, I don't think there's any, um, there's, there's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt that uh, this comes out of, of an era where uh, children were discovered as uh, marketing targets, you know, um, like never before. Um, the research I've done into uh, marketing uh, to children suggests that there was a lot more going on than than I originally realized, and I think that many people realized, you know, pre nineteen sixty, you know, way way going way back. Uh, there, it, it isn't a new idea. Uh, there were lots of sales gimmicks. There were lots of products, you know, aimed at children. So we started creating the sense of of both potentiality and also uh, a kind of vulnerability. You know, we 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 started being afraid for children. Uh, that that's a really major shift in in the modern age of. I mean, there was a time when we just we thought of children as resources, and we and they were there to be exploited. Child labor, uh, the idea of 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 child rape. I mean, no one really thought that much about it. That becomes a, something that emerges, you know, as children become both more precious and also far more expendable in this other sort of weird way. So, I, I think that's another way to look at. Uh, the, the sacrifice element. Um, how does this connect in your mind to a theme that we have talked uh, about from a couple of different points of view, but our, our concern about lack of initiation rights in Western culture, particularly American society, does that have any, any relevance here? I, I, I feel like it kind of, it does, Ooh. and I'm not really quite sure how. Oh, that is really interesting. Well, I think that if if we're thinking about it in terms of the the vampirism, right? Uh, there could be a sort of connection between never having had uh, ritualistic initiation rites and becoming a s- <laughs> sort of spiritually undead creature, right? Mm-hmm. Who uh, requ- requires the energy of children to com- to, to continue feeding off. Right. I mean, that it it does seem to me that when you go through an initiation, right, let's say you go through the bullet ants and you feel this intense pain. And when you come out of it, you're a man and you have all the things that we talked about. You have a community that has a certain set of goals, et cetera, et cetera. You have you have transitioned. Your energy has shifted from that of a child to that of an adult. What happens if that never goes through well then you're just you're carrying this this childlike energy with you throughout your entire life but it's always waning right you're sort of it's a kind of wasting disease that you have to replenish with the spiritual energy of literal children to keep it going and when you bring the mass media into that it becomes a lot easier it becomes a whole lot easier because you can you know child stars are very, very particularly not presented um, in the context of, you know, of adulthood. I mean, I'm thinking of Britney Spears in the in the schoolgirl outfit. Right. I mean, she, she wasn't like Brooke Shields, who was made to look like a grown woman. Her youth was was part of the whole thing. 
right? So this vampiric degradation of the the unalchemized child energy uh, might have something to do with it, right? There's this continuous mill that needs to be filled. We need to remain perpetual children by sacrificing literal kids spiritually. Oh, I think we're on to something here. And I, I don't know if this ties in, but I, but it, 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 it's just something I happened to uh, see the other night. Um, the Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. Have you ever seen that movie with Jodie Foster? And Martin Sheen plays a very creepy local pervert. Uh, you, you haven't seen it, did you say? No, uh, no I Okay, well, I, 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 uh, the gist of it is uh, <laughs> that Jodie Foster is 13 years old and living alone in a house in a small town in Maine. And uh, the adults are very curious about where her father is. Uh, they don't know about her mother. There's a nasty landlady, and the landlady's son is Martin Sheen in a really creepy role. But in order to maintain her uh, independence, Jodie Foster uh, is a real survivor. And uh, I don't want to spoil everything, but... Uh, it's an interesting take on on childhood power and and a, a child trying to behave as an adult and the parameters and restrictions and expectations around a child. Um, and then this really, really disturbing uh, character that Martin Sheen plays. I mean, I just it's just so ooh. He really gets the ooh factor in there. Uh, so I, I think that the, the connection is, is that we, we have, the moment we, we, we don't have initiation rites that solidly transition people from literal children to some kind of consensus uh, community recognized adulthood, we create these vampire beings who are either constantly trying to recapitulate a childhood or uh, vicariously uh, somehow take it on from, from either literal uh, uh, children or media images. Yes, and all, but also, you know, the actual humiliation and degradation of the child is an important part, right? Uh, can't separate it, I think, from the fact that the child star has to be used up in some way. Are you familiar with Amanda Bynes? Uh, that name, uh, give me a background, because I think that just came out so, from I, one of my conversations late, recently. Yeah, so she was a child star. I think she might be the exact same age as I am, as a matter of fact, because I used to watch her on... Nickelodeon all the time. She was on their version of Saturday Night Live. It was called All That. And, uh, you know, just kind of a cute, bubbly teen, right? And uh, as she grew up, she had a complete mental breakdown and started getting all of this 
plastic surgery and tweeting and Instagramming erratically. And it was a very public spectacle watching this uh, person who no longer looked anything like the child star that she had been kind of descend into this uh, wormhole of anorexia and you know, a plastic surgery. Yeah, that 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 was the context I've heard of her recently. Yes, I know I'm with you. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the the degradation process has something to do with it as well. And I'm not sure if the degradation maybe comes from the the way a psychic vampire would work. You know what I mean? Like the, the way that it actually would sap this person's energy and we're watching them literally get sacrificed. Or if the the degradation is induced as a symbolic part of the ritual as such. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, if you have people who've never left childhood uh, and they want to get back to it, there might be a kind of jealousy or anger or or the the the, the feeling the need to defile it in some way to to match their own defilement. Hmm. Um, I wonder which way that actually goes, but I will say that it does seem to me because, you know, we don't often see, although I'm, you know, it it does happen. We don't often see child stars go the other way. And this, I mean, perhaps we don't see it because it doesn't make for a good story. I know that they exist. Okay. I know that there are child stars who grow up to be perfectly well-adjusted human beings. You never hear about them again. But most of them don't. If they don't outright die, they die spiritually or they go crazy or what have you. Uh, and there's a thought process that, well, you know, there's a lot of pressure with, with fame and being in the spotlight and having your appearance commented on all the time. And, and yeah, sure, I get all that, right? But thinking about this in a ritualistic context, it seems like the cruelty is the point, doesn't it? I do think that's right. Uh, I've got, I've got two. I've got a question, and I, I do have a thought. Uh, someone did come to mind that uh, I, I think is a, a, a very happy uh, alternative example. But in this framework, where do you see Michael Jackson? Oh man, he is the ultimate. Yeah, right, right, the absolute ultimate. I mean. The, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure if this is the right term for it, but we're talking the gold standard of yeah. what we're talking about here. On, on every level, very, right? I mean... Yes, and there was a very specific uh, high priest of his, you know, of, of this ritual, which was his father. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and his his father had actually turned his, his entire, all of his children into these uh, freak shows. But I'm not sure that there was a Jackson child that entirely made it out unscathed right um but you know michael jackson is such the living embodiment of that whether you want to talk about his weird skin bleaching his face how how strange he looks i mean neverland ranch uh, all the way to all the way to the actual you know acting out of, of of pedophilia you know i mean it yeah he's he is I was thinking something lighter, like a Britney Spears, right? Who, you know, shaves her head and, you know, goes a little nuts and she's under the conservatorship of her father. Now it's a big story in gossip magazines that, you know, that she doesn't have access to her money. Um, But yeah, 
Michael Jackson is kind of like the the er sacrificial child, right? Yeah, I mean it's so archetypal that that you you can't. I mean. <laughs> You can't have written that story. It's just too big and too, you know, it's too overblown to really, really believe in a way. Uh, but uh, here's an example. I, I just, I don't know, um, maybe I was, I guess I've been thinking about this in, in that way, but um, it did cross my mind uh, a really happy example or someone I I, I met who uh I think is a really kind, wise <clears throat> Hollywood survivor. Um, years ago, I, I won this major uh, writing contest in Australia, and uh, I got flown up the coast, and, and I was performing at this theater uh, in the round. And downstairs in the main theater happened to be the Monkees. Uh, mm -hmm. Mike Nesmith wasn't touring with them, but the rest of them were. David Jones was still alive. And um, I, I, we, I hung out in their green room, and it was really, really fun. And Mickey Dolans, who is the kind of the, the real vocalist of the group, and uh, <clears throat> nominally the drummer, you know, but he was really uh, an actual musical talent right from the get-go. Uh, he was just so cool. His whole career started, he was in uh, a show called Circus Boy, I believe. I mean, his whole life had been in show business, like Ron Howard and some of these other figures. And he had really, uh, I mean, he was very, very low key. He was completely unpretentious. He'd seen a lot of weird stuff come and go. And I kind of thought of him as sort of a, a bodhisattva sort of, you know, um, figure you know maybe, that's, maybe those maybe those are the two ways you can really go with this kind of thing right i mean <laughs> maybe uh there there's no middle option you don't become a guy like me if you've been a child star you either completely lose it or you know it's kind of like seeing cthulhu you know you either <laughs> become a babbling incoherent mess or you just shut up and never speak again, right? You've like seen the face of God or something. Right, right. On the other, on the other side of that ritual. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you have a friend who has been in children's shows before and without talking too much out of school, has he ever mentioned any weird vibes that he got from, I don't know, the set or or anything strange going on with that? No, no. No? Um. You know, I, I think that there there's a, a well, no, I, I would say that no, there's nothing that's uh, that I've heard of anyway. You know, um, mm, okay, nothing that's certainly uh, that crosses over the line, and also nothing that's all necessarily all that interesting uh, either. I think there's right. a lot of it that's that's pretty workmanlike. The um, the one thing that from my old advertising days that, uh, you know, that that expression that's, uh, I think W.C. Fields, uh, you know, never work with uh, children or animals. Uh, I certainly found that anything to do working with children posed enormous problems because of the parents. And uh, I remember a casting call we were doing. Uh, it's a pretty big budget commercial for uh, a new department store uh in downtown melbourne it was really a, a big project of urban renewal and reinvestment and uh 
it was a casting call with about a hundred different kids in it. And every single one of them, and certainly all of the, the parents, mostly mothers, I, I, would, I would have put them all way, way deep into the spectrum of, of some kind of psychosis. You know, mm-hmm. they were just unmanageable creatures. And uh, this idea of like show, you know, kids troopers. Um, and that made me th- think of, uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, old Navy commercials. Are, I, I just, I find just so offensive on so many levels. They try mm-hmm. so hard to be, uh, you know, inclusive. Uh, but when they feature kids, uh, I bet that those kids are just complete demons, you know? <laughs> and I don't mean your kind of fun demons above, you know? I We like your malevolent spirits and weird, you know, the circus ominous creatures <laughs> of David's world. David's porch where the, where the, where the tentacles and, and fangs appear. Now, the, these kids seem really, really sick. Um, and I think that is part of this whole, um, well, no, let me just ask the question then. If they are demons, have they been sacrificed or are they somehow turning the sacrifice around? I, I think there's something in this model that we, we've kind of got to have it going both ways. Yeah, it might be a self-defense mechanism. I don't think that the sacrifice necessarily works unless some kind of innocence is taken away publicly for everybody to see. I think that that's how the ritual has to work. I think that if there is um if they're kind of jaded and demonic and uh acting like a, you know, a what's the word? Prima donna. Yeah, if they're acting like uh, you know, uh, you know, make sure that my M&Ms are all brown or whatever. I mean, that doesn't, they, they could be seen in a way as having a, you know, a kind of act of, uh, as an act of rebellion, you know, maybe they're the ones that didn't take, they got, they got polluted too soon, right? Before they were ready for their, for their close up, so to speak. Right. You know, that makes me think of, um, Alan Parker, the director, who I I had a lot of time for him. I I think he did some interesting work. And a lot of his films, uh, almost everyone that I know of, is is, really hinges on music. And I don't mean just uh, Pink Floyd the Wall. But he did a movie called Bugsy Malone. Uh, yeah, with all kids, right? Yeah, all, all kids, kids. Yeah. and it's it's a 1920s gangster thing. Jodie Foster was in it. I think that was Scott Baio's first film role. I can't remember if there were other major stars from that, but certainly Jodie Foster. Um, but yeah, it's it's a musical. Paul Williams wrote the music, and I remember just thinking that was really a, a very cool thing at the time. And for whatever reason, uh, I introduced my father and my stepmother to that movie. I, I think, I don't know, we were just hanging out. Uh, and they were absolutely horrified. They were horrified by it. And I was so, I mean, I, I, I had no, I mean, I thought they might not, you know, 
give a shit about it. But I had no idea how visceral the reaction would be. And and but why? What what do they object to it? I you know I I don't I I tried to uh, to query that. I thought, well, is it because there's a love affair in it, and they don't think the kids are uh, old enough? It was it the music? Was it the stylization of it? You know, there's a the instead of a, a shootout with guns that they uh, people get killed with cream pies you know it's it is mm-hmm. very stylized and i could have easily thought well someone would just go look this is ridiculous you know um sure but but i thought but you didn't it was expect cool. them to get like yeah you didn't expect them to get you know frazzled about it absolutely <laughs> not and that is the word they did they really really did they were sickened they were sickened by it and I thought, wow, you know, I mean, you know, kids have been in, in stuff before. We had the little rascals and uh, it, it didn't seem that anomalous to me at the time. But now I wonder, I, I haven't seen that in a long time. Uh, and of course, I bring memories of, of uh, I mean, I knew some singers who, who, who actually had a couple of, used some of those songs in their repertoire. So I, 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 you know, there's a whole other thing going on, but I mean, I wonder what would you imagine would be something that you just wouldn't be prepared to see kids, an all kid cast. An all kid cast. Well, yeah, I guess a, a gang, anything, anything hyper violent or sexualized, I guess would be, you know, I would be really uncomfortable with, um, you know, maybe like a Animal House style uh, movie with kids, or uh, that's interesting. I mean, that was an interesting I mean, choice. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Or like, or you know, yeah, any anything to do with with crime. It's probably the 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 crime element. This actually reminds me of a recent debate that was going on about a Netflix movie called Cuties. Oh yes. Oh yeah, yes. So this one this one similarly uh just completely disgusted a a vast portion of the population. Right. Heard about it. It's a it's a French film about uh I think it's a dance troupe. Mm-hmm. I want to say it's a dance troupe of young girls. Yes, it is. Yep. Prepubescent, maybe pubescent. I'm not I'm not sure. They're young. They're very young, right? And a lot of the dances that they do are hypersexualized and people just recoiled from this, right? Which goes back to kind of what I was saying about the demon children, right? Is that the ritual doesn't work if it's too overt, right? Somehow Britney Spears is okay and Cuties isn't okay, right? Um, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of delicate line that can't be crossed I didn't see the film. I heard that this was like a, a very big overreaction and that, you know, people who were kind of getting their panties in a bunch about the movies, the movie, uh, people were sort of like, well, why does this bother you? Right. Does it turn you on? Are you dealing with some internal feelings about what you're seeing on the screen? But uh, but I don't think that's it exactly, because without having seen it, I sort of recoiled from the concept in, in general. You don't. You don't want the you don't want it seesawing between the worlds of the adult and the child too much because it's that innocent energy that's trying to be caught, 
not sexual or violent, right? It's, yeah. Oh, look, I, I, uh, I think there were absolute uh, problems with it, and I understand that. Um, I mean, I, I had a, a weird, you know, reaction seeing this little girl uh, just in front of my Walgreens with a little T-shirt that says "Hot." You know, mm-hmm. and and I right. I think they're they're I mean I think it's a very confused thing when we're on the one hand just so hyper sensitive to any kind of hint of of pedophilia or anything even like that, and then to kind of market and push and celebrate uh, really just radically uh, sexualized children. You know, pre. Puberty. I think that is just plain weird. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, you know, I would also say that it's it's pretty strange in in the post Me Too era of what adult women are are on about often, you know, and how that's mm-hmm. presented. And I think, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, we're, we're it it just is it's just a little confusing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That's yeah. that's my thought well, there. Yeah, that that whole thing brings up a lot of confusion uh, in general, even for adult women, right? Where it went in directions that I thought were opposite, basically, where, you know, you have women sort of celebrating their sexuality in a cool way, right? You know, I've got, well, I don't know if OnlyFans is cool. I have my reservations about that, right? But, you know, you have your OnlyFans chicks and, you know, cam girls and, you know, doing porn and all this kind of stuff. And then this sort of, hyper uh aggressive you know clamping down on uh on the other end of things right where it's kind of like sex is all well and good and cool until you know a man steps over the line (laughs) wherever that line is wherever we choose that for that line to be at any given time and then it has that person has to be uh you know shunned forever i always thought that was an interesting you know, like the, the the idea of like a woman walking out of the house uh, looking hot. Right. And then a guy maybe saying something or catcalling and, you know, and then the woman being like really offended by it. And then you kind of have to wonder, well, but what was the I mean, men are, <laughs> yeah. men are simple creatures, man. I mean, if you put if you put, you know, boobs in front of us, we're, we're going to like our brain function is going to stop. We're just going to say words, you know. We've known this since the beginning of time. Why are you surprised? I'm not sure what I'm trying to say anymore, but I think you do. <laughs> yeah, no, I do, and that's. A, I think that really is the point, and I think what what it is is tremendous cross messaging. You know, it's confused signal at at d- directly in conflict, and and that's the important point is when you when you really get something of. And, and our society is doing this all the time of saying one thing and doing the exact opposite. And it, it's very difficult to navigate that. And I, I think that the answer is that we're not, you know, oftentimes that we're not. And, and there seems to be a kind of perverse societal enjoyment. I'm not saying this is an individual thing, but on on a societal basis, there seems to be some celebration of perversity that we we enjoy this saying one thing and doing another. I mean, it's just it's quite bizarre. And if 
I mean, when other uh, people from other cultures who are not as media uh, savvy and media exposed, you know, for instance, people uh, in, that I've known in, in New Guinea or parts of Africa, when they look at this, they go, you got to be kidding. You people are nuts. I mean, yeah. what is up with you? You know, and <laughs> I, it, it really is true. And, and uh, I think that when, you know, because we're embedded in this whole situation, we're naturally, uh, we have some immunity to it. And we certainly need to have some immunity because we're bombarded. But every once in a while, you know, out of the corner of the eye, you catch a flicker of this and you think, wow, that is really psychotic, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, I'm just thinking about what you've said um, about the different, the, the cross, the cross messaging and, and how sort of confusing it is. And, you know, that really to me feels like the diagnosis for our culture at large, right? I mean, everything just feels so schizophrenic right now. And I don't want to bring the mood back down. I really don't. But it just kind of hit me that, you know, everything is just, you know, it's good and it's bad and it's, you know, it's totally appropriate and should not only be appropriate but be celebrated. And then other things should be completely condemned, which seem oddly similar to the things that we're supposed to be celebrating. I don't know. I just, I feel like everything's, you know, everybody's losing their minds. And, uh, I don't know. I think that um, I'm trying to link it somehow back to the child sacrifice, but nothing's nothing's coming. Nothing's coming up. So I think I think I've gone off the reservation. <laughs> well, we'll we'll come back to that because I think that really is a very very big idea, and I think that we can look at that in terms of the commercial aspects of pop culture because pop culture really only starts, I think, when you when you start getting some, some marketing dollars and advertising message and product in it. And it, it, it accelerates from that, that point on. Uh, and certainly, you know, in the years after World War II, there was a huge explosion of that. Um, I, I, I want to throw a possible link back in, in terms of uh, war. You know, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, I mean, there was real, uh, you look back at, at, you know, the 1960s, the activism about the Vietnam War, it was real. There was some serious, you know, sincerity going on there that was really important because people were going off to war. You know, there, there was a draft, there was, you know, young men anyway. Uh, getting uh, sent off to Southeast Asia. So we've had generations of that. I am, um, every time I'm, I'm, I'm back, uh, although my, my father died in California, he never was part of the whole Seattle thing at all. I mean, he died, you know, a long, long time ago. And the family moved up there well, well after. But, you know, I think of him and I think of the fact that I'm, you know, I've outlived him and, I, I think of my, my stepfather, who was uh, captain in the army. And one of the things that's not really talked about in my family, and I think it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing for many American families, uh, is the, the, 
just the trauma and the damage that those young men went through. And it was just expected that they would carry on. And there was no post-traumatic stress disorder thing at all. You know, there might've been the phrase shell-shocked or something, literally, you know, as in mm-hmm. brain damage, but there was no emotional sort of psychological thing. Now you, you know, fucking get back to work, go mow the lawn, you know, get the GI bill and, and, and you know, no, no tears here, young men. And so that's a kind of, of, of sacrifice, certainly a loss of innocence. And I think for at least two generations, war uh, was the initiation into adulthood. That's what it meant. Does that connect some dots? in Afghanistan, we've always had a military, we've continued sending young people to die overseas, but there was never that kind of huge conflict that was experienced by so many people all at once. Experienced so heavily, by the way, that it was felt all the way back home. Right, It was kind of a a collective initiation, in a way. Um, And then you get to this certain point, and I don't know where the transition is, but you do get to this certain point where it became fundamental to our lives to maintain a sense of of youthfulness you know i mean maintaining youthfulness i know i I mean there was a what was it was it elizabeth bathory who would who would bathe in the blood Mm -hmm. of young women yeah so i mean there's there's always been these kind of rituals of you know particularly women trying to stay young by bathing in the blood of of young people all the way up to you know People like Epstein, who also had some very strange ideas about about young people's blood. But I mean, I think that the point that I'm trying to make is that in World War II, you had this great big initiatory event that did seem to create, for better or for worse, uh, a class of adults. Right? The the after the Greatest Generation, you you kind of had the Boomers, and then from there, there does seem to all of a sudden be a focus on kind of making youth last perpetually always being a kid Mm -hmm. never growing up and with that you get the michael jacksons and the britney spears and the people like that were there well then no but see then it gets complicated because there were child stars i mean there was shirley temple and people like that before world war ii i don't know i don't know but I think we're on to something at least. Oh, I think we are. And I, I want to remind listeners to a point that you made. Been, yeah, there there were Charles Star. I mean, but you know, Shirley Temple, Jackie Coog, you know, there 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 were a few, no question. But when we were talking about this, very specifically focused on what childhood means in terms of pop culture. You remarked that there are corporations like Disney that are actively engaged in in manufacturing child stars every week. They may not catch on, but uh, there's you know they're being thrown at the wall like mud to see what will stick. And I, I think that is is really uh, the difference. They they're not just emerging by chance or on the basis of talent or 
you know, and for all the manufacturing grooming and weird, weird grooming behind Michael Jackson and, and the Jackson family, uh, they, you know, he was really a prodigy. I mean, there, there, there was, you know, um, there were no other people. Uh, I mean, there were a few other examples. I, th- I actually think the Osmonds are, are very, very interesting. I, I would love to have a, a, a chat with Donny Osmond. I, I quite like, he was, um, I saw um, the Donny Marie show at the Flamingo here. I was very impressed. I was going along to kind of laugh. And I, I, I thought it was just beautifully done. They were tremendous entertainers. And at the time, he was doing a, a, a Thursday night gig as a disc jockey on a, kind of a, you know, a top four, well, what remains of a top 40 station here. And he was great to listen to. He was really, really cool. Um, mm-hmm. So he, that, that whole scene is a little bit of an alternative scene. But... On the other hand, you know, I mean, they're Mormons, and <laughs> there's a whole other yeah, weird right. thing going on there. Uh, Absolutely, it's. Uh, yeah. But I, I just thought of something. There was a, a a band called the Silvers, a family group, African American, who had a couple of big hits. They were really, really uh, popular in the Bay Area. I I really liked a couple of their songs a lot, and the. Uh, kind of the lead singer in the Michael Jackson vein was, was Foster, Foster Silvers. And I believe that he got into major trouble as, as a pedophile, as an adult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm pretty sure he did. I, I think he got uh, in his, in his a permanent sort of, you know, on the permanent sex offender sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But and they, they completely uh, disappeared as a pop act, and uh, so it didn't turn out well. I mean, I not for him anyway. I, th- I think the the others maybe just got out of the business. But uh, it it is interesting to sort of that there aren't many that really really kind of do well, and I don't know if we would be that interested in them if they did. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. I'm right. afraid that's yeah, just, the truth, just, you know? Because you have uh, ritualized sacrifice. It doesn't mean every single sacrifice is successful, right? I mean, there are ones that work and there are ones that don't. And the, you know, the ones that turn into pedophiles are really interesting to me, too, uh, which is probably a topic for another time. <laughs> yeah. But there's something to that as well. And and I'll I think we should do some uh, due diligence about some stars that that actually did do okay. I just was thinking of Tim Matheson, who I think he actually had some sort of thing in in, in Animal House, but he was Johnny Quest, and he he okay. did a lot of things, and and is became a very you know accomplished adult actor, director, producer, and so there are some examples you know of real survival, and I think Ron Howard is obviously a great example. Um, He's his master class thing. I think is terrific. I'm not a huge fan of his movies necessarily, but I do think he is a just a, a great show business professional. And uh, his video series in the master class program is just it's fantastic. I did that just uh, around the time I I did David Lynch's one, and um, 
in a different way, of course, uh, they're both really great. So there, there are examples of, 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 of survival, and maybe that could be a way of, of looking at uh, how, they, how they negotiated the, the, the child sacrifice, you know, how they survived that. And that might be a clue to, uh, you know, health in a bigger societal way. I think we might pick that up next time if that's uh, if that appeals because I do think that you got onto something really big with this that uh, it it just popular culture as child sacrifice you know um, yeah it, it's a big idea it's a big idea it is it is yeah and I think we did some uh, getting the toys out on the floor in this episode and usually that means there's something big. Yeah, something out. Um, so I think I have an idea about your 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 prompt. Okay, I think I have an idea. So okay, so we're going through the woods, mm-hmm. right? And we come upon a couple who's also walking through the woods. Um, okay. So what I have here, it's not as big of an idea as the daycare, right? <laughs> I love but that. I, but I think this could be a nice, tight, psychological thriller, like a 90-minute psychological thriller, okay? So the primary couple that is going hiking, they're not going hiking uh, anywhere around here in any public parks around here because they're not, they're not isolated enough. I'd want it to be something a bit more woodsy and a bit more, uh, you know, kind of like cell phone reception is cut off. Right. You know? Okay. Maybe maybe something a bit cold. Um, but what I want what I would want to have happen is it to be a, a couple who's recently lost a child, right? And mm. not in a miscarriage, but it, but they've actually lost a child. So they're getting away not to, you know, kind of have a break, uh, but they're getting away to kind of, you know, try to find pieces of themselves again, right? And so they come upon a uh a couple in the in the woods as they're hiking and the couple has a child with them. They've taken their their young son with them out on on a hike as well, right? And they're out in the middle of nowhere and the weather is getting bad, so they agree to set up camp together and they, you know, they hang out through the night and they're talking and there's, you know, this great great kid, you know, very kind of precocious or whatever. And so they decide, hey, well, you know what? We'll finish the last couple days of this of this hiking and camping trip all together, right? But as the trip goes on, the the woman of the primary couple begins to suspect that 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 is not that couple's son, right? Uh, and that there's something a little bit more sinister going on. She believes that she's getting she believes that she's getting signals from the boy that he's actually in danger and that something something very bad is going to happen. And so a majority of the story, how a lot of the tension would work out would be, you know, this woman trying to puzzle out whether, you know, she's having some kind of mental breakdown from her own loss right or whether there's actually something there. And the way that I would have it play out would actually be that this kid was eventually going to be a kind of child sacrifice, right? 
And I thought it would be cool to have like as the as the story's getting creepier and creepier, you start to realize that his quote unquote parents have a lot of uh childlike tendencies, right? Mm. They have uh that they they kind of act like like at babies at times or teenagers or whatever, but they're kind of obsessed with with toys and and games and and they themselves are not quite all there and it would be a kind of energy uh, an actual sacrifice right because it's a it would be a movie or a book or whatever but you know as it as it went on you started to realize that they they are looking to vampirize this child and it's up to our hero protagonist woman to uh to save him so that's what I got. Again, not 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 as big of a bombshell, but I think it would make a nice tight little ninety minutes. Oh, I th- I think so. I think it's very interesting, and I it it it's um, it actually uh, has something to do with a a, a kind of uh, parallel story that I wrote a long time ago, where there are two versions that are happening, and you're not sure which, uh, where a woman uh, who's traveling alone sees. Uh, a little boy in a car and she believes in one epi- in one side of it she sees him trying to get her attention as if he's being kidnapped and then pursues this couple who and in the other version she's completely insane of course and this family is being pursued by this so i think there's something really going on there i i, I would explore that and i i like that uh that creepiness of of the parents kind of not uh, not being fully adult. I think there's something interesting there. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well yeah, done. Something to tease out. Something to tease out. Yeah, I'm basically setting up my writing schedule for the next two or three years with this show now, and I'll just you know because I'm ending up with um, with all of these ideas that I I think some of them would make nice little novellas, and I'm trying to ramp up my writing production anyway. So uh yeah, I'll I'll put that one on the I don't I wouldn't have a title for that one or anything, but that would be something that I would probably write a bit later. Jeremy Robert Johnson wrote this great book called In the River, which is about uh an Amazonian uh tribesman whose uh son is eaten by a large fish creature in a river. And the book is all about this um this guy hunting this kind of shark thing that's taken that's eaten his son and killed his son. And Jeremy told me that he wrote that because he felt all of this parental anxiety over the potentiality of, you know, of losing his child. Mm-hmm. Now his child's perfect, perfectly safe, perfectly healthy. He's a wonderful kid. Right. But there's all this anxiety and he had to find out a way to let his worst fear come true. And so I think that this one if and when I do eventually write it, would would serve a similar purpose, right? You have to you have to get that anxiety out artistically because, whew, it's heavy, man. Well, <laughs> it's heavy, right. and it's always there. It's always looming. You know what I mean? I, and it will continue to loom for the rest of my life. So I yeah. I think that's you know I mean if if parenthood doesn't doesn't do that, nothing will. But I I think you know we've had a lot of. Uh, contact with with the mother and mothering anxieties I, I i think it's interesting that we start to hear more from from fathers and and how that works so 
Yeah, look, I look forward to it. I think there's, uh, and there is a need to get that anxiety out. And I, I can't see that happening any other way than, than artistically, really. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, what if in the book, instead of, you know, the mother's the one who has the suspicions, I could just have it, I could have it be the father. That might be an interesting reversal, mm-hmm. right? You know, of, you know, the mother's just sort of enamored with this young boy and she's kind of, uh, she wants everything to be okay. You know what I mean? Just to kind of like live out a kind of vicarious thing. But the dad is very suspicious. Right? There's something, there's something off about these people. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do, do you get that? Do you see that they're, that they're off? And she said, no, 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 they seem nice to me. She's just, you know, I like that. I like that. I like it coming from him. I think that's interesting. I think that's interesting. I think that sets up some, some cool dynamics. Yeah, because you know you go with the like the, the like the mother and the sort of the, the typical thing, but you know I am a dude and I am a dad, so yeah, why not make it come from me? Books by men for men. What a concept. Where did where did that go? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, bring that bring that back. Let's bring that back. That's uh, it's time. It's time. Exactly. Exactly. All right. You have a practical tip for my. I, I do for my morose melancholy ass this i week. do uh it, it, it's again you know seems simple but i think it's something really important to apply uh we all need mystery and magic in life but we don't want to to you know misperceive the world and create mystery and magic where it doesn't exist so this is about the principle of occam's razor which simply put is If there is a simple, straightforward explanation for something, take that over a more complex one. I actually think this is very, very difficult to do sometimes, particularly when we get into our own heads. And I want to give an example. Uh, I recently ended uh, a kind of love relationship. I, I think it had actually ended, you know, well before, but I was kind of coming around to that. And I wanted to uh, look at, at two emails that I had sent. And I just wanted to try, kind of, you know, reassure myself that I said in closing what I wanted to say. Well, they were gone. I couldn't find them. And I went into this paranoid, magical sort of frenzy thinking, Wait a minute, how, how did she, okay, she can delete it at her end, but how could she delete it at my end? And I really started chasing my tail, you know, Winnie the Pooh and, the, and Piglet chasing the woozle. And of course, finally, I came around to the hard acceptance that I must have deleted them myself. I didn't want to, I, I, I had forgotten that, you know, but you can delete things really quickly, you know, you, you can, uh, and I just forgotten. I hadn't wanted to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking of a time just over the weekend. I, mean, I was in Santa Barbara with my friend, and we were uh, we'd had breakfast, and I watched this guy riding a bike. And he crossed the street, and without any break in the action at all, he passed something to this homeless guy who was wandering with a cart. And I was the only one to see this. And I kept thinking, like, wait a minute, what, what was, you know, was it drugs? And I, mm-hmm. I thought, I just, 
I couldn't work out what the deal was. It was so precision. It was like more than a relay race. It was just beautiful, like they expected. And finally, I came around to thinking, okay, yeah, it was drugs. That's the simplest explanation. It may not be right, but there's no point in, in positing another one. And I think if we remember that and really focus on the simplest explanations possible wherever we can, if we put that pressure on the world, then when things really are mysterious and are difficult to account for, we have that intuitive sense of knowing. We're, we're clear on that. But I, I'm very conscious that I oftentimes will ignore the simplest explanation, maybe because it bores me, maybe because I want something to be more mysterious, and I get all wrapped up and confused, and that's really not a good kind of confusion. So Occam's Razor, that's my, that's my tip. No, I like it. And I experienced that myself over the past year when COVID first hit and all of the data was coming in. We had this deluge of, you know, different facts and figures and statistics and things like that. I was halfway convinced that it was being manufactured. I was a COVID truther, right? Because I had a lot of data around me that I was compelled by, specifically the way that people were being coded for for covid deaths um in hospitals the um the not so great efficacy of the pcr test which is used to diagnose the covid etc cetera, etc cetera. there were all these pieces that weren't quite fitting for me right and so then i started thinking well there's you know there could be this great conspiracy to make everybody think that there's this new thing that's actually the flu on and on and on and eventually you know i after a year or so, I had to just kind of come to the conclusion that no, it's probably a pandemic of a novel coronavirus that you know has killed about six hundred thousand people. That seems to be the case. That seems to be what has happened. Now, I mean, that doesn't change some of the other peripheral things that I believe about it. The way that it's been leveraged as a power grab, uh, the kind of dementia, and in many cases, undue fear that it's inspired in my peers and friends, uh, all of that's still relevant and valid. I still think I have a interesting and, and unique take on the thing that's worth listening to, but the whole COVID thing, it's Occam's razor, man. Yeah. It's a, it's a pandemic and people are getting sick and dying from this thing. So that's, that's my version. That's a really important extension of, 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 of the tip, because I think you've gotten to a really key point that you want to be able to look at something from a holistic sort of point of view. And if, I mean, because there are some things that are going on that are very strange. And this happens with many things. So you don't want to just go to the point where you have a, a complete conspiracy sort of idea where it's just a complete, and, and it's just kind of nutty. You know, no one wants to have that. But on the other hand, you don't want to just throw out your, your reasonable grounds. To be reasonable and to remain reasonable is the key, you know? Mm -hmm. That's what we want to stay, is stay noticing, stay looking at things, because, you know, there is no one simple sort of answer all the time. As our Ulysses S. Grant, you know, one, you know, 
because two men go in the woods to fight a duel doesn't mean there isn't a third already there, you know? So exactly. Yep. That's actually a very applicable phrase for the whole COVID situation. Yeah. I'll get it. I'll just let, I'll let that hang there. How about a dream? Okay. Well, this, I think works under uh, a possible sort of subtitle. Who are those people back at the cabin? Now, I have a, a, a condition. Um, it's, a, it's an official neurological condition of uh, phantom memory of, of a few major. Well, they're not, they're not necessarily major to anyone else. They're not significant uh, oftentimes, but they have a peculiar vividness to them that is just impossible to describe. And uh, one is uh, I am driving counterclockwise around Lake Tahoe, passing Emerald Bay, listening to Crystal Gale singing, Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue. And my thought is I don't want to go back to the cabin to see those people yet. I want a little more time alone. Now that never happened. There is nothing that I can ever trace back in my adult life to anything like that. But that is as vivid an experience as me talking to you right now. It's even more, I just, it, it is, it's painful almost how clear mm -hmm. it is. Well, in my dream the other night, and this was a dream. Uh, I'm back at Lake Tahoe. I think it's been on my mind because it's been uh, evacuated by forest fire. It was an important place in our family upbringing. But it's a very, very different scene. It's sunset and the wind is up. And Tahoe is a big, deep lake and it's deadly uh, when there's really, really heavy wind. And I'm in a Nissan rental car, and I am not listening to Crystal Gale this time. And I am driving the other way, west, around like to go north, and I'm looking for uh, a street with a name like Buttercup Lane, something that's very un-Tahoe, un-mountain-like. And as I get closer, the people who I've never been able to focus on, I don't know if it's a, a couple, two couples, I've never been able to get my mind, they, they just recede, you know? They're the, and the closer I get, I'm almost seeing them, I'm almost imagining them. And in the dream, I stop the car and I think, I don't want to see those people at the cabin <laughs> under any circumstances. And the song on the radio is Tom White singing, I don't want to go back to that hotel room. All they do is shout, but I'll stay with you until the money runs out. <laughs> and I wake up, and I just, I don't want to go, I don't want to see those people at the cabin, man. I don't know who they are, but I don't want to go back. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I don't know what it means. Well, I don't either. I don't either. And I'm, I'll be thinking about it. But in my dreams, by the way, 
they're not just sex dreams anymore. <laughs> they're, they're, they're expanding back out of recording them. Good. And there's nothing interesting going on in them yet. Yet. But they're becoming more and more clear. I used to um, have these insanely vivid dreams, and I would do, uh, before I went to bed, I would take about three, uh, 300 milligrams of glycine before I went to sleep. And glycine is known to create what's, well, it's called glycine dreams, right? Mm-hmm. Just very vivid, very real. And I think, I think I'm going to go back to the glycine, actually, because uh, it was getting to a point uh, when I lived in El Paso and I was taking glycine every night before bed that I had an entire parallel life going on. I understand that. I understand that so fully. Some people just don't get with that, but I certainly do. And I, I think if you can, if you can cope with it, because it it does take some psychic energy. It, 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 there's a little bit of a scramble in that. I think that's a really great idea, particularly if you're trying to hit this hard writing pace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I need to refuel the tank every night basically that's what i'll do man i'm gonna hit the glycine and i'm gonna you know keep up with the journaling and get back into it but it would man it would be crazy it would be like i would be at work and i would be thinking about i get home i'll I'll read a little bit but when i go to bed you know i have to go to the the mc escher upside down city and see that guy about the glow I'm so with that. I, oh, that cheers me up, man. I yeah, I hear it. Yeah. Oh, dear. I'm right with right, you. I'm going, I'm going back. Watch. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to find out that I left for a reason. You know? <laughs> They're going to be like, we told you never to show your face here again. Right. I'm like, uh, it's like, did you did you take the glycine again? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I sure did. They're like, well, now that you're back, we have a hydra problem, so follow me. That's probably why I left. It was the damn hydras, <laughs> right? <laughs> Overrunning my my upside down city. But yeah, the upside down city, the 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 big uh the big bridges, the big like always huge bridges in my dreams, enormous bridges. Uh, that's always been a focus. Yeah, now I'm pumped. Now I'm amped. Yeah, Good. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go back. Good. The like Jack and Lost, where he has that big beard. We have to go back. I have to go back. I have to go back to the island. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Well, I I think this is good. This is good. Yeah. All right. All right, dude. Well, until next time, another very fun episode. We hope you guys enjoyed that. Tell all your friends. Um, and that's all I got. That's that. I'm, I think I'm done. I think we are. I think we are. But next time we'll talk about the book club and a few other things. But take care, everyone. Stay safe. Stay sane. Stay sensible.